Make up your life to start anew. You'll find out some things to be true. Like you are stronger than you once knew. Hi, I'm Lenora Calaruso. Has your journey towards health and wellness been a rocky road? Mine sure was. Plus, I have a busy life as a mother of five, a grandmother of two, an RN, a personal trainer, Reiki master, and a nutritional counselor. Whew! How do I fit it all in? Well, it's balance. Think, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears. Not too much of something and not too little. Just right. My podcast is designed to inspire you towards that next step of achieving and maintaining everlasting health and wellness. Welcome to It's a New Dawn for You. You pack up your life to start anew. You find out some things to be true. It's a New Dawn for You, which is the name of my business and podcast, came to me while meditating. My sister-in-law Dawn had died a couple of years before, and to say I was close to her is an understatement. She was my best friend, my confidant, pretty much my everything. The meaning of the name is my firm belief that there is always a new day, a new beginning to try again. And I felt it was Dawn giving me a message loud and clear that the name was perfect. Hello, everyone. It's Lenore Caluso from It's a New Dawn for you. Um, today's podcast is um, my story. Um, pretty much every time I start a podcast, I ask the um, guest to talk about their story and what led them to where they are today. And I thought it was important to uh, talk about your host story. Um, so today's podcast is actually we're getting I'm going to get interviewed by my director, Sharon Murray. And um, I guess it'll be sort of a question and answer kind of podcast. So I'm hoping through this podcast um, that you as an audience will, as usual, get some kind of tidbit of information about me. Um, and also, if you have any questions or um, want to talk to me about anything, you can get me on my email, which will be given to you at the end of the podcast. And I'm open to anything you need to ask me. Um, I'm, this is just a let all, you know, tell all podcast. So um, right. that's about it. So right. hi, Sharon. Hi. <laughs> hi. So I have the pleasure of interviewing people, not all the time, but once in a while. Um, so I read your story and my overall impression was I was really sad for parts of it. Um, there was a lot of what I would consider neglect in the house, in the household. And my overall thought, like, I was angry. And your parents were, like, right there. And I was like, where are the parents? Like, where, you know, I was upset that they 
didn't stop some things. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to, but but listeners, don't worry. There is um, there's a lot of hope in the story. There's a lot of recovery. So, but we'll get to that. Uh, I want to go back to when you were. Uh, you told me something really shocking about a memory about being in the womb and. Um, listeners like the, this can sound kind of woo woo, but some people do have memories of being in the womb. Mm -hmm. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I just feel that I'm, first of all, I am one of 11 children and, um, just to put this out there right in the beginning, I have no, um, bad feelings about my parents, uh, as of. 35, actually from, I'm 54, probably from 45 on, I forgave everybody. Um, but no fault of their own. There just wasn't time. And I was the fourth up from the youngest, um, of 11 children. So there was already a lot of children in the household. And I remember, I feel that I remember being in my mother's womb and, her just, I was just, she had just a belly <laughs> and she was busy all the time and there was no time for taking care of her and nurturing her baby in her belly. So I feel that that's when this all started, this feeling of neglect, um, you know, sadness, um, being alone. So that's actually how it, this whole story starts. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah. So yeah, I feel like I remember that, and um, whether it's true or not, I don't know. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. her just not having time to nurture me yeah. in her belly, um, laundry and cooking and dealing with my dad or whatever, and other children, and <laughs> seven other children. So yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I can understand that. Yeah. Then um, at age two you develop, you got spinal meningitis, which um, I don't know a lot about that, except that I do have an uncle that passed away from that. But that sounds like something that you don't survive. So yeah, a lot so, of people back then, well, now there's vaccinations for spinal meningitis, for meningitis. Um, but back then, as I wrote in my story, I feel you know, why, why was I plagued with it out of 11 children? But I was, and, um, I was in the hospital for three weeks and in a fetal position. And this is another instance where I feel that I remember this at two years old. And the last thing I remember is the doctors telling my parents it didn't look good. And they were, remember my, the doctor talking with my parents at my crib. So I heard everything and it, he, he told my parents it didn't look good. And my parents left the hospital as usual and they walked down these stairs and they walked outside and there was a window where my crib was and they would look up just to see for any hope of me moving. And that particular day I was jumping up and down in the crib and they came running back up and it was a miracle. And the residual effects was that I had lost hearing out of my right ear from the bacteria. And also the bacteria affected the tubes in my heart. So, um, but it could have been much worse than that. Um, so my parents were very grateful. 
although they never acknowledged my hearing loss because there were so many kids and they just weren't able to acknowledge treating me. Um, but I did confirm the story with my mom and that all of that happened, them walking out of the hospital, and she described it exactly how I thought about it. Hmm. So it's really weird how I can, you know, what, what, what I remembered and what was to be true. So, yeah. So that's just a short snippet. But um, it did cause a lot of problems because I couldn't hear, really. And um, school was not very good for me because I couldn't hear. And also my eyes were not very good. So I tended to, like, sink back in the crowd and, um, and yeah, become obnoxious actually, because it was, uh, this cover up for me to be obnoxious. Um, so I was known as the weird one or the obnoxious one. So, yeah. <laughs> what ways would you be obnoxious? What, what, um, I what wanted was... attention, I guess. And like, look at me, look at me out of 11 children. It's hard to get attention. Um, so I would be the one doing the funny things like, Splits and okay. funny things. I was always very active and um, look at me, attention, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So, um, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I know that around age nine, going up to age nine now, um, you had a brother who was in the Vietnam War. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Joe? Joseph. Joseph. Mm -hmm. And um, I read some things that were really... Um, surprising about Joseph and one was that his anger would cause him to throw chairs and nobody thought this was unusual nobody really reacted to this but everybody was afraid of him yeah no we we did think it was it was that was a really bad bad time in my life where um I kind of just existed in my household, I felt, um, for all my life, actually. Um, you know, and this was no fault of my parents. It was, I do forgive them fully. Um, they did the best they could. Just being a mom of five children, Absolutely. I know I am not, <laughs> you know, I'm just the world's okayest mom. But we all mess up. We all make mistakes. And um, so let me just make that disclaimer. Um, but... My brother was in Vietnam, and he was discharged honorably, but he had mental problems. And later we discovered he had schizophrenia, but but also the um, Agent Orange, uh, that's what they called mm -hmm. it in Vietnam, it affected his brain. And the doctors would prescribe medication, on pollen medication, and, um, you know, if you don't treat schizophrenia the right way it's just going to <laughs> progress to something way worse so my brother was very very scary um he was um you know I had this big love-hate thing with him and most of the time it was a hate relationship only because I was scared shitless of him um you know our, the siblings and I would come home from school and if we saw his car in the driveway it was either you stay outside and you just wait maybe the car will leave or you go in you pray and you hope that he's in a good mood or you hide but pretty much we were 
very scared of my brother. Um, we just never knew when he was going to explode, explode. And we later learned this was PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, he had it to the total extreme where if I took more than one paper towel, he would explode. Do you know how much paper towels cost? And uh, one instance was when I think my one of my siblings threw a pee across the table at dinner and he just got up and threw chairs and are you crazy? Do you know how much food costs? And this was not just one or two instances. It, it happened a lot. So we, we lived in fear for, for years, <laughs> total fear. I was in constant fight or flight at all times. And just the nervous system is totally expecting a lion to come and pounce on you at all times. And so not healthy for your body. One instance was when I took a piece of bazooka gum from his car I don't know what what possessed me to do that. I just did. I was addicted to sugar. And um, he said, who took this bazooka gum from my car? I hid in the closet for hours. And he came in and was like, Lenora, it's okay. In this most calming voice, it's all right, you know. And I believed him. And I came out of the closet and he threw me, threw me against the wall, like picked me up and threw me. And this was a man who was in Vietnam. So he was very strong. <laughs> um, and it was really scary. And uh, yeah, so those are not very good years with my brother home from Vietnam. So it was hard for me because you're supposed to love your sibling. But I was in constant fear of him. Um, and the day he committed suicide, because we'll get into that, um, I would always call out of school because I couldn't see and I couldn't hear. So I was constantly going to the nurse's office because I just didn't fit in. And I had to weigh, my mom didn't drive and I had to weigh whether I wanted to risk getting picked up, like dealing with the way Joey was in his mood or staying in school. And I was so sad about school that a lot of times Joey won. So this one particular day, day the day he committed suicide, he came and picked me up and from school, I pretended I was sick again. And um, he held my hand as we're walking out of the school, which was not normal for him. And he looked down at me and he said, Lenora, you know, remember, I always love you. And I looked up at him and I thought that was really odd because that never happened. And that was the day he committed suicide that night. Yeah. So. I was nine. Hmm. Yeah. How did that? So at nine, um, I remember being with my mom. and um, But prior to that, I don't know if anybody remembers Zoom uh, on TV. I'm 54, so anybody in their 50s may remember it. But I was sitting watching Zoom. I was addicted to TV because that was my friend. And um, sitting up very close to the TV set, sitting on my long hair, <laughs> um, that was my friend. So I watched Zoom, and uh, my brother came running up, my other brother, and was like calling 911. And I was, what's going on? What's going on? And we ran downstairs and sat with my mom, and paramedics came, and he did it. He, he killed himself with a um, knife behind my brother 
bench pressing in the garage. So my brother was bench pressing and my brother, my other brother, Joey stood behind him and took a knife and just cut himself from top to bottom. And that was it. And, um, paramedics were taking him out and they were saying he was going to be all right. And I was sitting with my mom and that was it. And the feeling that came upon me was relief actually. Yeah. I can't even imagine because it's so complicated, right? It's yeah. So, people don't know because so on the outside people looked, uh, of the family who went to church and 11 children and, we lived in this house in Mountainside, New Jersey, and beautiful, and, you know, uh, but, wow, on the inside, we were pretty messed up, and, yeah. um, you know, uh, I feel, I felt guilty for the relief that I felt, but it was mm. this, this just relief, and I couldn't go to the funeral because I cried so much that I couldn't see, and, um, you know, I, you know, I know he forgives me and I know he's been with me since his death. And, um, I call upon him often. Um, and I know that he is an angel, you know, now, and he is relieved of all his pain, but I understand that pain as you will find out later in my story, how I felt that pain in my own life and suicidal actually myself. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that um brings me to I think about age same six, age, nine. Same age, nine. Where, where yeah, so so things get a little bit bleaker. If that's not bleak enough, things get a little bleaker when this priest starts to visit the mm -hmm. house. So this priest who is not a priest anymore, he's still alive. Um I will, I don't know if I should say his name, but, um, you know, um, he came to console our family, quote unquote. He was a friend of our family. Um, we'd go to church and, um, he would be a priest saying the mass and, um, I wanted to trust in somebody cause I felt like, this anger in the family, there was just no, no love, nobody to trust, nobody to look to, nothing. So this priest came to, this right. 11, 11 siblings. Right. And I felt, I was always different. You know, I embraced that difference now and I embraced my weirdness, um, but I was always different and I just never fit in, you know, and that's okay. It's fine. But, um, then it was really hard. So I felt like never accepted by my siblings really at all. So, um, this priest came to console our family and I used to be called the leech, uh, because anybody who used to walk in the door, I used to hang on their shirt. Like I used to just go and hang on their neck. This by your by your family. You were called the leech. I was called the leech. Okay. My father, my mom, like the leech and the monkey and, you know, like, cause I just wanted to be wanted and I wanted to be loved and anybody who walked in the door, I could have been a painter. <laughs> I would hang on their, what <laughs> I, I remember that, you know, I would hang on their neck and I was little. So it was like not, you know, and that's what I did with the priest. And I thought, I think that he knew that I was an easy target. Mm. 
So he went to on to abuse me for a little over a year. And, you know, the worst part about it was my parents were right there. And mind you, this is 1974. So it's a lot different now. I can't imagine any parent having their kids sit on a priest lap with a blanket over them or having the priest put them to bed or going to the bathroom with the priest or bathing them or whatever. It's just my parents just, I guess, trusted him because he was a priest and I did. And, you know, recently I listened to Oprah Winfrey and uh, Netherland or uh, the boys that were abused supposedly by Michael Jackson. I don't know if this is true or not. And I, that's not what this podcast is about. But she talks about combing. And I related to that 100%. What's that? Combing is when the abusee is being combed by the abuser. And it's usually, it's like a, it's when the abusee knows the abuser. Like it's uh, somebody they trust and love and the abuser combs them, like gets them uh, to this point that they, that I trusted him because he's a priest. Right. Why would a priest ever try to hurt me? Or why would your sibling ever try to hurt you? Or why would your camp counselor ever try to, mm-hmm. they comb the abuser, abusing. And that's what he did. He used to write me letters he used to um, tell me I'm beautiful, tell me I'm a good little girl. This is our secret. Um, uh, I won't go into detail, but he took away my innocence. Of course. He took away my innocence, but he yeah. do- it doesn't have me now. You know, I say that there was a, I posted something on Facebook because an article came out in the New Jersey, um, NewJersey.com and it was talking about all the abusers in New Jersey and he was one of them and only I came forward. And I'm very proud of that because I know there are other people. One other person did get in touch with me after that came out. And wrote me an email and so I know there's definitely other people um, but he did try to get reinstated um, when I was 40 um, and I had gotten a letter from the archdiocese saying that the only way to keep him from the priesthood is to come and testify against him so I had to go back to the archdiocese and testify against him which was really hard and I got a letter a few weeks later saying that I was able to do that. So he was never able to go back into the priesthood. Yeah, you permanently barred him. Permanently barred him. Well, what a way to take back your power. Yeah. So far, we've got a story of, like, a lot of powerlessness, a lot of powerlessness on the part of of everybody in your family. Mm -hmm. Really everybody. And then, so we will get to the part where where you're taking back your power. We will get there. I took back my power (laughs) later on in life. Yeah. But... You know, um, I did open up my case again because the statute limitations is 55 years now. Um, and they had asked me in a question, how has the abuse affected your life in any way? <laughs> I had a laugh. I actually did laugh. That's I'm like, insane. yeah, my whole life, as oh we will God. get to, he really, but 
the story has a happy ending. I just want to make sure it is clear because that is why this whole thing, this is why I can forgive him and anybody else who has ever hurt me in my life is that is why I am where I am today. Exactly. And I am so, so proud and so happy about myself. And so we'll get there, but yep. okay. yeah, so all that happened and I can't go, we, we'd be here all day talking about, that whole with my brother and the abuse and all of that. And like I said in the beginning, if anybody wants to talk to me, if anybody, I am so open to talking to anybody to release their sadness with them to whatever. So you can email me or write me mm -hmm. or call me actually even. Mm -hmm. I'm very open to all of that. So um, anyway, yeah. So that was nine. And right. Set me up for total isolation, I guess, from then. It was, couldn't talk about it. Um, so what I feel like is that there was a lot of like powerlessness. There was a lot of not feeling in control. So I know that you developed something mm -hmm. that... It was probably the you, in your in your written story you said like this was the worst part of it. Mm -hmm. The and worst. It was something that you started to do to yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've developed bulimia. Um, you know, I guess the purging was just trying to get rid of all my grief and sadness and trying to get rid of it through purging. Uh, but prior before that, it was anorexia. Um, just same, same concept. If you're not eating, you're in control. And I wasn't in control when this priest was doing what he was doing. I, I was not thinking of it then now, but I've done so much work and, you know, myself and know what that this all means, but it's all a matter of, of control. I did not have control my whole life with anything. And the anorexia, I was down to a very lightweight. Um, and I had my period had stopped and, um, I always wore baggy clothes and um, I had told my mom, one of the few talks I had with my mom, cause I don't really remember really doing anything with my mom. And again, I forgive my mom. I love my mom very much. Um, but there was no coddling. There was no, um, going shopping. There was no going to my activities or anything like that. But I did tell my mom, my period had stopped because it scared me. And she brings me to this doctor. And once I take off my clothes, he sees that I'm extremely thin. And the answer was she needs to eat because it's so much different. It was so much different then than it is now. So the answer was she has to eat. There's really no name for it. I don't think they even said anorexia or whatever, but, um, that was what my mom told my dad and my dad being this Italian driven man was like, okay, you're eating. And he would literally grab me and say, you're eating. And it would scare me. So I learned from somebody in school in high school about throwing up. And, um, there are other valuables to this story, but I, like I said, we'd be here for hours and hours, but, um, basically I learned how to throw up 
Um, and the first thing I threw up was popcorn. I remember that. <laughs> and it was really hard to throw up. Um, but it's like any addiction. It, I had to get rid of it. I had to get rid of food. Um, there was no in-between for me. There was, the trigger was any kind of carbohydrate, like uh, like an ice cream or a potato chip. If I had one, that was it. And I was on death door. I, for six years, this went on, uh, 16 to 22, were very crucial years in anybody's life. Um, my teeth are totally ruined. I have no enamel on my teeth. My gums are ruined. Um, I would throw up probably at least four times a day. And um, that was my whole life. That was my existence. And I was so lonely. And at this time, I was dating my husband, who is my husband now. Um, nobody knew. It was the biggest secret ever. And it was really hard to keep the secret. Um, I went to the hospital many times for electrolyte imbalance, which I knew was directly from throwing up, but I never told them there. So I have a heart problem already from my, um, spinal meningitis. So they would contribute to that, but it was actually just purging and getting rid of my food. And I would be throwing up until I would throw up blood because then I would know there was nothing left in there. And, um, because I didn't know what I know now is I would brush my teeth and brush the acid all over my teeth. And that's why my teeth are so bad. Um, so going to the dentist is detrimental to me. It's so hard, but, um, uh, it was really the loneliest time of my life. Um, I would hide, we had a cabana and I would hide. My, I would hide in the cabana. I would pretend I'd go to school, hide in the cabana. No, it was the day my mom would go to the food store. She only had a certain days where she would go. And because she finally would get her license. She did get her license finally. And she would go and she'd be gone like four hours. And I knew that window of time I couldn't eat everything uh. I could in the house. And throw up, eat, throw up, eat, throw up. And it was... As I would throw up, there was that relief of that purging, that emptiness, that getting rid of that sadness, that anger, that grief. Um, the weighing would be weigh with my clothes, weigh without my clothes, weigh with one foot, weigh on the, put the scale on something different. And that leads me to like my training today, training people where the scale is a piece of metal. And that's what I mean about this all teaching me good things now because it's all about health now. It's not about the scale. It's not about your weight. It's about how do you feel? You know, you may feel good at a certain weight. You may feel good looking a certain way. Who am I to judge you? So there's always that good that comes out of this pain, you know. Um, I forgive so much easier now. I was more aware when my kids were little about people. Um, I might have been too much back then, but I'm kind of grateful for that, that I was aware of these outsiders or asking my kids questions. And mm. 
if you are uncomfortable with anybody or and not making it such a big deal with that I made my kids uncomfortable um so yeah so I mean there is a long story that goes with those six years but what got me out of my bulimia was actually the the to the um want to have children like I wanted children so bad and I know at that age I was 21 when I got married and at 22, I was very young, but um, I needed a child to keep get me out of this death mm. sentence because I knew that if I was pregnant, there was no way that I was going to throw up. You know, there wasn't any way uh. that I would jeopardize my children. Um, but in between that, there is something that happened at right. 19. Right. So right. I want to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So at 19, <clears throat> I had a major car accident. So I had near-death experiences three times in my life. I would say that my spinal meningitis, my bulimia, I would ask God, please just take me. You know, I'd be on the floor of the bathroom and I'd be like, just kill me now. I, could, I couldn't. It was so hard to live that way. Um, so lonely. Such a lonely life. And then I had a car accident when I was 19. I was a passenger in a car, and I got hit on the metal frame um, in the back seat. And I don't remember the accident, but I had a fractured skull, and I had a facial nerve that was crushed. And uh, they brought me to JFK Hospital, and um, they pretty much really didn't do anything. And I couldn't move my – I didn't know this at the time – but I couldn't move my face. It's like a stroke victim or Bell's palsy or something like that. Okay. And the nerve, the facial nerve controls your tear ducts, your, your saliva glands, your forehead, twitching your nose, blinking your eye, smiling, all of that. And I didn't know what was going on because I'm in this hospital and they shaved my whole head to uh, try to get to my nerve and um they pretty much were like tossing it up like you're she's not going to be able to hear and she's not going to be able to move her face and my father knew a lot of important people and he got me moved over to mount sinai in new york so they moved me over there right away they operated his name was dr eden um don't know if he's still working but um he operated right away and he was able to take the bone out that was crushing my nerve in my ear and he saved the bone. They saved it. Um, and I went to rehab for about a year to Mount Sinai to move my face as much as I was going to move it. Um, so I'm probably about 85 to 90% now. And the reason being so is that I was young. So I had youth on my side. I was only 19. And, but my hearing, I was, I'm completely deaf in my left ear because the hearing is what conducts the sound. And, um, they tried, they shaved my head again a year later, tried to reimplant the bone and it did not work. So I have a big hole in the back of my ear, my, in my skull, because I had to take some of my skull away to, um, do the, both operations. So I'm totally deaf in my left ear, and I have hearing loss in my right ear. But I've learned to live with it, and I'm okay. 
you know, I'm okay. But very traumatic for me, you know, very traumatic coming out of that because at 19, you know, you're into your beauty, you're, you know, and, you know, I couldn't wear contacts. I couldn't see because I, you know, I had contacts by them, but because the facial nerve controls the tear duct, you can't, you wear contacts because they can't lubricate them. So I had to wear these big, thick Urkel glasses <laughs> and um, couldn't move my face. And um, I remember the first time I tried to do chicken, um, I was like, what the heck is going on? But I did my saliva gland because the facial nerve was crushed. Wow. So it came back little by little, but because my facial nerve didn't come back 100%, that's another reason why my teeth are not that good because you need your saliva to coat your teeth. So, uh, yeah, so that's what happened at that time. Um, and then at 21, I got married and I wanted kids and uh, I stopped cold turkey. Wow. I didn't know bulimia. that. I did not know that. No. And, you know, it's funny. The first thing I thought of when I was came out of my little coma when I had my accident was, oh, my God, how am I going to throw up? Yeah. You told me that earlier. I was in the midst of the whole bulimia. I was in panic mode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Panic mode. Couldn't feed your but I ended up throwing up again, believe me. Crooked face and all. Um, so to this day, I really can't, you know, I can smile. But I look at people, like, how easy it comes to other people. And I look at them. I talked about in my story, in my writing, I look in the mirror, but I look past the mirror. Like, I know I have to put on my makeup. And I can't explain it, but I'm going to learn to embrace that eventually. But that's very hard for me. Like I look in a mirror and I look past my facial expression and do what I need to do mm -hmm. to, to do it. Yeah, and I'm a very good person. I know I am pure love inside. But one day I'm going to accept all of me because I do love others and I see beauty in others because of all this that ha has happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I never see, I, see, I always see pure love and they're in everybody's essence. Mm. You know, and I know I'm, I'm that and it will come, but you know, so unsteady wins the race. Hey, we always have to have something to strive for. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't. And it'll, you're not like fully recovered in this lifetime. Right. Like, it's, it'll come. It comes in stages. There's somebody who wants to do photographs of me. She comes to my restorative classes, and she sees this beauty in me. And she's. She asked me, "Can we please just do photos of you outside? I see beauty. I see your love. I see essence." And I just got this text yesterday. I'm not going to say your name. Maybe you want me to say your name, but, you know, if anybody wants to know, um, she is a photographer. And um, I told her, I said, I almost feel comfortable enough for her to do it. And um, that'll be another milestone for me, just to love myself and mm. be comfortable with it. All of you, you need to all love yourself because you're pure <laughs> love. <laughs> I love you. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so then the way to save me was my children. And I found out that I had a problem having kids. Uh, I oh. have one ovary and one tube on opposite sides okay. um, because I had 
a disease that I never got to in my uterus. And uh, back then they cut you from one side to the other. And the last thing the doctor said to me was it, a mir it would be a miracle if I got pregnant. But five kids later, I, wow. you know, had five children wow. within eight years um, with one tube and one ovary on opposite sides. Now, anybody in the medical field will know how amazing this is to have a baby that way. But that is my story. And I had four boys and one girl. And um, they saved my life. Mm. You know, I might have had them for the wrong reasons because I needed to save my life. Because I knew I would keep throwing up. And oh. I would end up in death. That it gave would. me goosebumps. I could literally have goosebumps. <laughs> it would. Yeah. But I had my children. They absolutely saved my life because um, I knew that when I was pregnant or breastfeeding, which I did, I never gave them a bottle. And I very I very rarely let them, anybody watch them. Um, I knew that I would never jeopardize their health. And by the time I had all my kids, my bulimia was at bay. I have not thrown up since I'm 22. And, you know, grateful for that. I'm really grateful. I would never, ever think about ever going back there. But, um, yeah. So this is, this is like a really tough story. Like there's a lot of loss in this story. And... I like to think, um, like, I, I remember like going to a therapist, uh, I, I was going through a rough time. My husband was dying and I, I needed some extra help. Um, and I remember the therapist saying like, oh my God, I was telling her like what had happened. And she's like, so much loss in your life. So much loss, so much loss. And I'm like, no, don't say that. Like, I didn't want her to see, I didn't want her to see, um, First of all, I was, I was surprised because I didn't view my life as so much loss. I was just like, life happens. Mm -hmm. But the reason I'm bringing it up is that I had this theory. Um, what I wanted that therapist to know is like, yes, but out of, out of all that stuff that happened, like I have more, I feel like I have more um, capacity for joy. You do because of your losses. Yes, and I think that you, I think we share that belief. Oh, definitely, and I think so, that we're not we're not atypical. Like this is a very I believe out there, the audience. It's very typical. We all have our story, and we all have our losses. And um, but hearing it on some kind of social media platform, I think gives the permission for people to be more vulnerable. And that is my whole thing is to be vulnerable and to share and being through these losses and hurts totally makes us stronger and, um, and human helps me to be this person that I am today. I'm not, to I'm not perfect at all. You can ask my children. I messed up big time with my children. Um, I love the shirt, the world's okayest mom. I guess I was an okay mom. <laughs> I love I that, never shirt. Saw that shirt. Yeah, it's a great shirt. Oh, it's a great shirt. I'm you Lottie, Lottie, who I want on this podcast eventually, actually wore that shirt 
shirt and I was like, I need that shirt because <laughs> I'm just the world okay as mom because I messed up. I really messed up. But, but take us back to that retreat because I know that there was a retreat where, okay, so the-, the Where I learned the kids, my meditation and yeah, yoga. Yeah, that saved so my that, life, retreat, actually, yeah. I talked about that with me personally and also in the stories that you sent yes. me in writing. Well, so tell us like how- we What know brought kids, me to where I am today, yeah, and yeah. I want to say first that for all those years, I was in that constant state of fight or flight, where I was in that panic mode, whether you realize it or not, a lot of us live in that mode. And my whole training philosophy, my whole yoga philosophy, is bringing us back into the parasympathetic, that calming state where it's our right to be in, where we can heal. Um, that is my mission now in in my personal training and in my yoga teaching. Um, Reiki, uh, doing practicing Reiki on somebody, that is my whole mission because that is what saved my life. And at 39, I believe it was, my, my husband had given me a gift for my birthday to go see a spiritual uh, healer, sp spiritual person who um, uh, uh, taught me about meditation. And um, I was obsessed with Deepak Chopra at that time. And um, my husband knew that. What a thoughtful, thoughtful gift. Uh, yeah, I didn't see him, but it, this woman practices, practiced what he would preach. And I went to this retreat center for a weekend. And I don't know, I just took to meditation so quickly. Um, she gave me a mantra according to my birth date and all of that when I was born, where I was born. And I still use it today, but I practice different types of meditation. But um, uh, pretty much I took to it Really quick, she gave us a tape of Deepak Chopra. Back then, we had cassettes, and at that time, my kids were like I said, I had five kids. I have five kids. They were very little. I, um, you know, like I said, I had them within eight years. So um, I had this big conversion van, and they had a, I had a cassette player in there, and on the cassette, Deepak Chopra would start me off, and then it would be twenty minutes of silence. And then he would ring this little bell and kind of wake me out of my meditation. And while my kids were in football or karate, I would sit in my van. And anytime I could do it, I would do the meditation. And I have not stopped since. So since 39, I uh, became this person who was aware of my thoughts and actions and more conscious of everything that I do. Um, um, it's it's an ebb and flow. It's not a linear line. There's been some mess ups. There's been some things that in my head I couldn't deal with, but meditation is a lifesaver. I can't suggest it enough for anybody. And then at forty, I was introduced to yoga and hatha yoga. Um, for I'm a personal trainer, so I try to I keep up on my credits, and I went away to Baltimore, and one of the things that was offered was um, yoga, and again I took to it. I took to the asanas so quickly, and blended the meditation and the yoga together. Have not stopped since I'm 54, um, and it's both of them are 
something that brings you into the present moment. And when I lose my mind, I'm able to collect myself and bring myself back into the present moment. Um, again, this is something I could talk about forever. Um, but something that doesn't have to cost you anything, but can be a lifesaver. Um, so I urge you to look into meditation and yoga. Um, like I said, my yoga is more of a yin style yoga where I'm um, integrating the um, parasympathetic nervous system, the calming aspect of the nervous system. Um, all yoga is good, but I've practiced everything in my lifetime. And at this stage of my life, um, like I said, everything is, to me, for me, it's bringing everything down into the, the calming aspect of my nervous system. And that's where we can heal. Um, that's where the body is so relaxed, where we're open to healing. Um, yeah. So. And I know that you are a certified nutritionist as well. Yeah. Right. To the like, Amer American that, Academy of Sports and Nutrition. So um, that must play into your recovery. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, nutrition was huge um, for me. It's different for everybody. Uh, there's so many different fads and diets out there. And when I do train somebody, um, it's more about their lifestyle and what mm. works for them because there's no right diet for anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I'm pretty much a vegan, but I would not, um, uh, impose that. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. a plant-based definitely, um, good energy food. Definitely know where your food is coming from. Um, uh, pray before you eat, um, or just wish good energy from this food into your body, no matter what it is. I'm huge on energy, prana, um, in my training, in yoga, in eating. Um, um, so it's just all a matter of being conscious of your food and where it's coming from. Because why would you want that in your body? You know, if you don't know where your food is coming from and it's, you know, if you could pick it or plant it or kill it, I hate to say killing it because I'm a vegan, but it's true. Um, it's, you know, natural food, you know, it's all good food, you know, try to buy organic if you can. Um, and there's some people who can't buy organic. There's some people who don't have the money, but that then again, you know, that's why I say no matter what your food is. Whether you don't, if you don't believe in praying, just wish good things for your body before you eat it. Mm. I do that for everything that I put mm. in my body. Mm. Um, mm. You know, so food is huge. And for me, um, higher good fat was good for me, um, for my brain, and for making, you know, I feel that I talk about coconut oil on one of my podcasts. Um, I've been eating it for 14 years. Um, the good fat for my brain cells has nourished my brain and kept my anxiety at bay. It's um, I know my therapeutic amount is about two tablespoons a day. Um, I know I could probably go about three days without it, but then I start to feel the effects of it if I don't. Um, 
if all of you don't like coconut oil, you can do another good fat. You could do avocado, good nuts, um, you know, something like that. But fats are important. Good fats are really important to keep, um, especially anxiety at bay. I find that they use that for um, kids who have epilepsy. I have two kids with epilepsy. Um, I use that often with them. The oh. coconut oil, yes. Huh. Mm -hmm. Did not know that. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to go back to a little bit about forgiveness because in the beginning I'm like, oh, what a with what the a what? forgiveness. I was like, yeah. I've been like, what a what a horrible story, you know, like what a devastating story that you um, that you have to tell. So give me some, give me an idea of like how you able to forgive ah well you always hear that you know it's only hurting yourself if you don't forgive mm. and it's like holding I don't know the what the quote is maybe you know what it is but I couldn't hold a scowl on my face for much longer in my life you know the scowl was from the anger for my parents the anger for my siblings the anger for Joey the anger for my the priest huge the anger just on myself and i look in the mirror and it's like this ugly face it's like this scowl like <laughs> anger mm. and um i had to let that all go i had to surrender it in order to release myself and and be at peace was it was it slow was it fast was it like a no it's an ebb and flow uh. ebb and flow not a linear line. It took a long time. I was in therapy a long time. The archdiocese paid for therapy. And I saw a beautiful woman who is um, a sister of charity who has passed away since I've seen her, who was huge for me. I think I saw her for 14 years. Wow. So it was a, it was a long road. But um, I didn't give up. Um, don't give up anybody. <laughs> um, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, sometimes I don't even believe how far I've come. And, um, I see you as a happy person. I'm so happy. Yeah. Try to be positive. I, but I am human too. I don't want to come across as, although my kids will tell you, mom, it's not all rainbows and kitty cats. <laughs> um, you know, I'm human, you know, and we all have to have our time and that's perfectly great. But, um, I talk about consciousness a lot with clients and people, um, be aware, be aware of how you feel, acknowledge them and, you know, let them go, you know, do what you have to do. Nurture yourself a lot. I nurture myself a lot. Um, I might need more than the lay person, maybe, but um, I know what I need. I need my yoga practice. I need my meditation. I need my good food. Uh, I need nature. So there's a lot, you know, but what comes from that is me. And I'm proud of me. Mm-hmm. So we're almost at the end. We have about seven minutes left, six minutes left. 
Um, what have I not covered that you w might want to talk about? Um, this isn't about feeling sorry for me or anything like that. Like I said in the beginning, it's just to let you know a little bit about me and why I'm so passionate about this podcast, um, bringing health and wellness to you all. Um, that's my mission in life. Um, and I think that Sharon, you as being my training client, would you, I mean, I'm a little good to you. Do you <laughs> no. Like, okay. How do you feel about my passion? On uh, hey, I come an hour, I drive an hour into a mountain. <laughs> I'm on the top of a mountain. I had to tell somebody one, I had to tell my boyfriend once, like, I can't, let, let me call you back. I'm, I'm a little lost. I just recorded a pod, the before I even met him, I'm like, I'm a little lost. I just recorded, recorded a podcast. He's like, on a Saturday night? I'm like, yes. Right. And I'm like, and, and I'm on top of a mountain, so I, I can't really see well. Right. And I come an hour to a mountain because um, I am out of, after three months, I'm, uh, my body, my body fat's down, which is the main reason I came. So I'm healthier. Um, but the main thing, like the main, main thing is like, I am somebody who has more pain than the average person. Um, they did give it a name at one point. They, they doctors called it fibromyalgia, but I am, I, I would say I'm at least 50% out of pain. Like I'm doing things that I, I always struggled with, like, I love playing guitar, but I don't play it as often as I'd like because I'm in pain when I play it. So I noticed, like, I went over my allotted time for, um, for, uh, rehearsal and I'm like, huh, I wonder why that was easier for me. I'm like, I don't feel the normal pain that I do in my back when I play guitar. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's been awesome and um it's been an honor to like to it's been first of all it's been an honor to interview you because that's like a lot of trust to trust somebody with your story um and yeah I'm just honored to be here and yeah I'm I I just wanted to the I hope that you feel the passion that I do absolutely it's not just about training for me yeah it's about more, so much more you want when i train like, somebody you want to help me on my journey like i really feel that I really, yeah really i mean really it's so much more than just somebody who's training you that's why this personal i always say the personal impersonal training you can go online and get whatever but i'm bringing my past hurts to my training and my yoga and it's uh -huh. all good yeah it's all really good and that's why i thank my past <laughs> to end this that's why i thank all my hurts all the accident my bulimia all my stuff that brought me to where i am today because i think if you asked any of my kids any friends i think passion would be up on top of the list of what i am with health and wellness and just helping people I just want people to feel good and um, yeah so I appreciate you interviewing me and um, 
hope to bring more good things to you and like you bring to me because you do such a fabulous job with this whole podcast for me making my dream come true doing this and so thank you thank you and uh continue helping me to oh i will uh, overcome uh you're, you're helping me do things i didn't think i could do i'm so glad Love you. Thank you. Love you too. Pack up your life to start anew. You'll find out some things to be true. Like you are stronger than you once knew. Yeah.